gather, come gather, friends, close by the fire, and hear of a wondrous tale. Of goblins and elves and miscoated dells, and heroes who strive to prevail. Five days they had walked, our young hero and friends, heading north towards the woods of Beleth. Ali was tired, the horse nearly expired, weariness rang out with each breath. You're listening to Ali Odds and the Ali Odds Squad by Leona Cara. Chapter 8 The Nervenga. both, buddy. Disgruntled, the horse veered towards the side of the road to take a break. Trenia gave a half-hearted pull on the reins, but the horse said nay and ignored her, clopping his way to a tall patch of grass and flicking his tail with finality. No one complained. We were pooped. I was pooped. Trenia was pooped. Even Theron was pooped. And the horse pooped. So we were a uniform crew all around. Five days. Five days of walking until we couldn't. Five nights of sleeping beneath the stars nibbling away at the dwindling food in our packs. Even taking turns on the horse, Trenny and I were far too tired for sword training at the end of each day, and soul sending was currently out of the question. So we just walked. Day after day after day, through pasture lands so nondescript they made blank parchment seem elaborate. Some days it rained. I hated those days. And I hated those nights even more. Cold and wet and miserable. Only the thought of Beleth, of the storied Elfwoods and Trenia's home, kept me plodding along, weary as I was. Theron reached his hands into the air and clasped them above his head, arching his back into a satisfying stretch. As he released it and let out a breath, something on the horizon caught his eye. Ah, that's a welcome sight. Theron pointed at a hill at least a mile down the road, where a pillar-like object projected skywards from the earth like a great splinter, impossible to miss among the treeless plains of Central Quib. Is that... Yes. Yes, it is, and it means we're halfway home. Theron took off at a brisk walk and quickly left me and Trenia behind. I squinted at the hill, trying to discern if the obtrusion was indeed a massive stone, as I hoped it was. Trenia, do you see it? I glanced up at her, where she sat hunched over on the horse, her deep brown eyes barely visible beneath the hood of her amber-colored cloak. Slow as a slug, she lifted her head to look at the projection and let out a small hum of acknowledgement. Hmm. A rover's rock. Trenia's eyes latched onto the stone, and for a moment, it looked like she was actually seeing it, not staring glassy-eyed into a subconscious realm as she had been the last several days. I was worried about her. The soul-sending ordeal in Agalitha had nearly killed her, and she needed time to recover. But Theron was setting a hard pace. He was eager to bring his sister back to their homelands, back to the Nervenga of Beleth, where she belonged. Trenia, on the other hand, was less than eager, Though we didn't know exactly what awaited in the elven woods beyond, I guessed her homecoming would be anything but pleasant. We continued on at our plodding pace until we caught up with Theron, who knelt at the side of the road by the rover's rock, examining a small hollow carved near the base. The stone was deep gray and smooth as river rock. It rose over twenty feet in the air and was so wide, Theron and I together couldn't have wrapped our arms around it. Century-old arrows had been chiseled into the side facing the road, along with words marking the towns to which they pointed. But both carvings were so eroded, I could barely make out the word Haventown heading north, and had to guess that the arrow pointing south was to Derry. There were no other stones of notable size for miles upon miles, 
and certainly none as grand as this. I knelt beside Theron, and joined him in searching the shelf-like hollow, which was large enough to stash a traveler's pack, but not so large as to stash a traveler. I leaned in closer, and saw several items scattered haphazardly within. A wilted rose, a crust of bread, a pearl earring, a bundle of wheat, three silver coins, a woolen scarf, a dagger in a leather sheath, and a small wooden carving of a dog. As we looked, Theron recited a rhyme in Nervangan. Yahila glay, yahila glay, sul intafal o dana tre, o jundu then uth jundu me, gurundi o kitsuluth pre. I knew the tune, and joined him in the common tongue. A rover's rock, a rover's rock, whatever might I have in stock. I'd trade you yours, you'd trade me mine, but leave me better than what you find. And if you rob or if you steal, then may the road bite at your heels. Hmm, I didn't know you mortals knew that rhyme. Every kid knows it, but I thought rover's rocks were just made up. There aren't many of them left, but they certainly exist. Raised by the elves before the first song, some say, but only the rocks really know, and they don't share secrets. Theron reached into the hollow and picked up the withered rose, then the pearl earring, then the crust of bread, and set them down again. This one's in pretty good shape, all things considered. More often than not, the whole stash has been robbed. But we can take something, right? As long as we leave something else. As long as you leave something more valuable, as goes the rhyme. <laughs> well, that won't be hard. Most of this stuff's barely even worth an iron stib. <sighs> I forgot you mortals always think of worth in terms of money. Right. Theron reached into his coin purse and drew out a shiny gold crown. I stared at it as if I were a hungry dog outside a butcher shop. That single coin was as much money as Mum, Jamie, and I hoped to make in a whole month back in Fribbleshire. If you truly mean to pass beyond the borders of Beleth, then pay attention. Pay attention or turn back. Theron picked up the bundle of wheat from the hollow and held out his hands as they were scales weighing the gold and wheat side by side. He stared at me plainly and said, I cannot afford this wheat. My eyebrows must have furrowed beyond their normal range, as a corner of Theron's mouth curved into a patronizing smile. The farmer who grew this wheat spent many months tending it, sowing it, growing it, reaping it. Along with the light of our beloved sun, the farmer's dedication fostered something that can feed and nourish. It holds the very essence of life within it, and I dare say a bread made with this grain would taste to that farmer's satisfaction, as well as the seed's satisfaction at having grown. What journey brought it hence, I wonder? Whose hands gave it to this rover's rock? What lucky being might it feed in the future days? A human? A bird? A mouse? Well, there's a whole story behind this worthless bundle that I find quite valuable. This, Theron held up the gold piece, is a dead thing. It was forced from a broken mountain, stolen from stone and beaten into a form it would not willingly take on its own. While as much sweat and effort went into making this, if not more than the farmer and their wheat, it does not nourish. It does not fill. More likely than not, other pieces like it were spent in making it, to fund a war, to prove that Queen So-and-so was mightier than King Bloody Blah, to give sweet Prince What's-His-Name a nice birthday party and a fancy horse. It's called a crown, isn't it? Paid for by crown wearers seeking to gild themselves still further, and I dare say those crown wearers would not care about you or me in the slightest. In that cycle, I find no value. This coin is worthless to me, and therefore I cannot afford this bundle of wheat. Theron replaced the wheat inside the hollow and rose to his feet, his point made. So what are you going to take? Nothing. 
I don't have anything better to leave, and I wouldn't dare risk the wrath of a rover's rock. Theron turned and resumed walking down the road. With a flick of his thumb, he launched the gold coin into the air, where it spun in a high arc before plopping onto the dirt behind him. I stared at the coin where it glittered in the sun, and then looked up at Trenia, my jaw agape. Is your whole family like this? A faint smile came to her lips. She had evidently been listening to our conversation, and looked more attentive and alert than I had seen her in days. She dismounted the horse, who was still grazing merrily, and approached the rover's rock. She stooped down to pick up the gold and came to kneel beside me at the stone. She held out the crown. Here. What? <laughs> no. No, I, I can't. That's too much money. He's right. It doesn't inherently hold any value. I find it as worthless as he does. And yes, my family is all like this. She continued to hold out the coin. And eventually I took it, holding it delicately in my palm, as if it were a baby bird and not a piece of solid gold. Trenia reached into the hollow of the rover's rock and removed the small wooden figurine of a dog. She stared at it in her hands for a moment and fell into a trance once more, lost in the doldrums of her thoughts. I put a hand on her shoulder and was hardened when she looked up at my touch and took a deep breath, as if waking from a dream. Are you doing okay? I asked. She held my gaze for a moment and then gave me something more valuable than gold. The truth. No. No, I'm not. But I'm doing well enough, considering. Trenia shrugged and reached for a hidden pocket sewn into her cloak. She withdrew a slip of paper that had been folded into a small, neat square and set it in the hollow. She caught the curious gleam in my eye and answered before I asked. A poem. One of Harathinga's sonnets. Not the most valuable thing in my possession, but meaningful still. She tucked the carved wooden dog into the vacant pocket in her cloak and turned to me. What will you take from the stone? I looked back into the hollow, at the wilted rose, the crusted bread, the earring, and the scarf, and then my eyes settled on the small dagger that was tucked into the back. The thought of my own blade was enticing, and its leather sheath seemed soothingly familiar. Wait a second! I reached for it, pulled it out from the hollow, and screamed. <laughs> what in the name of the moon? <laughs> it's... it's... <laughs> Did you stab yourself? Cool, but it's not even out of the sheath! Trenia's confusion made me all the more delighted, and it took several moments for me to tamp down my laughter and explain myself. This is my dagger! I ran a finger along the smooth wooden handle and pulled the blade from its sheath. Its weight felt familiar, and I gripped it tightly, as if shaking the hand of an old friend. Bertram gave it to me when I left Fribbleshire! I only had it for a few days before Joe and Grand stole it from me, but I know this is it! But that would mean... Exactly. Joe and Graham were on this road, and they were headed north! That's fantastic! Relief washed over me like a soft summer rain. Never had I felt such a rapid influx of hope! After a whole month of wandering, I finally had a clue that might lead me to Granbauer! The map Hatha had given me showed an old hiding spot of Joe and Graham's to the north of Beleth. If they had been heading north on this road, then maybe I had a chance of catching them there before they moved on! I fell over, overwhelmed by my good fortune and allowed myself to laugh, cry in the grass as it all soaked in. Trenia's spirit seemed to lift at the discovery as well. She needed hope as much as I did, even if it was hope for somebody else. After a few minutes, I crawled back onto my knees and faced the rover's rock. I held out my piece of gold to place it in the hollow, but I froze midway, debating what to do. A gold piece really was valuable, regardless of what Theron said. With that one coin... The three of us could stay at a schwanky inn every night for a week, 
with full bellies and hot baths to boot. I could buy twenty daggers with it, or I could send it back to Fribbleshire, to Mum and Jamie, to help them as they prep the fields for sowing. I had only ever dreamed of holding so much money. It seemed ridiculous to just leave it in the middle of nowhere for someone else to find. And yet that gold piece could in no way match the value of holding Bertram's dagger again, of what it meant in my search for Granbauer. It wasn't a fair trade. And though I didn't know what Theron meant when he said it, I too feared the wrath of the rover's rock. I noticed Trenia watching me, seemingly aware of the debate I was holding in my head. Value is what we make of it. Only you can judge. I wasn't raised to part with money unless I had to, and it defied my own sense of logic to trade a relatively worthless dagger for a solid gold. So, eventually, I set down the gold piece beside the weed. Though Theron might have disapproved, I personally felt quite comfortable departing from the rover's rock with Bertram's dagger in hand. The miles melted away after that. My spirits were buoyed by the thought of rescuing Granbauer and finally tracking down Joe and Graham. Trenia spent less time wandering the dark corners of her mind, and even Theron grew less derisive as we drew closer to Beleth. Since we were rapidly running out of food, we stopped to make camp earlier in the day so that Theron and Trenia could set snares for rabbits and pheasant. This meant we were getting more rest and eating hot meals again. Great improvements all around. Our extra energy allowed me and Trenia to resume sword training, and it felt like we were truly making progress. Not just with swords, but as friends. On our last night before reaching Beleth, Trenia taught me how to set a snare, then showed me how to properly dress the rabbit that we caught. She spent quite a bit of time holding the rabbit, closing her eyes and muttering phrases I couldn't understand in Nervangan. It looked a lot like soul-sending, but as her hands worked to transform the once-living rabbit into food for us still-living people, I came to see it as soul-tending. Five days after finding the rover's rock, we reached Beleth, just as Theron had predicted. I admit, I really had no idea what to expect. Trinia had made it clear the stories I'd heard about elves were mostly hogwash, which meant so too were the stories I had heard about their homelands. But there is one thing the storybooks got right. There were some big ash trees. In fact, I had mistaken the woods of Beleth for a mountain range when it came into view. That last morning, we walked quickly, knowing our journey was nearly over, and we made it to the bustling town of Edgemore well before midday. Edgemore marked the end of the road for anyone going north who wasn't an elf. A few stately trees scattered the town's cobblestone streets, but beside the towering trunks of the elfwoods, the elms and oaks of Edgemore looked like toddlers tugging at their mother's skirts. I marveled at the forest from a wooden bench outside Edgemore's livery yard, where Theron was busy haggling with the horsemaster about the price of our hooved companion. The scent of hay was thick in the breeze, and every now and then we heard an occasional plop, plop, plop of a horse adding to the town's compost. In between plops, I heard Theron say, No, no, he's worth twice that much at least and I found myself rather confused. Trenia sat beside me on the bench, and I turned to her, asking, If Theron was willing to throw away an entire crown, why is he haggling for a better price? Trenia took a swig from her water skin, wiped her mouth, and answered matter-of-factly. The horse master will treat the horse better if she thinks he's valuable. So Theron really doesn't care about the money. No, but he does care about the horse. She took another swig of water and offered the skin to me. We don't keep horses in the Norvanga, or livestock, or animals of any kind. They aren't ours to own. Every now and again, an animal will grow fond of an elf, and vice versa, and the two will form a sort of friendship. But the idea of us playing master, that's arrogance at best, slavery at worst. So then why is he selling the horse? 
won't that just make it someone else's slave? Why not let it roam free? Because he knows the reality of your world. I winced a bit when she said that, when she noticed. I I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean it like that. We both shifted uneasily in our seats for a moment. When she spoke again, Trinia's tone was heavy. I told you that elves weren't supposed to fall in love with humans. Th there are just too many differences. Yeah? Trinia looked up at the trees of Beleth, at trunks wider than the road and branches thicker than a dragon's neck. You're about to see a lot more of them. We're about to see a lot more of what? Theron emerged from the stables then, with a smile and victorious gait, several large coins clinking in his hand. Trees? Trinia answered quickly. Understatement. Can you imagine? That woman wanted me to sell our beautiful friend for a crown and five. A price like that, our chap would be toiling behind a plough for the next ten years. He was so kind to us on the road, so willing to lend a hand, or a hoof, rather. No, no. I talked her up to two crowns and eight. It'll be a stud's life for him. Lucky boy. As Trinia and I rose from the bench to put on our packs, Theron crossed his arms and studied me. His look was so appraising, I wondered if I was next to be sold a delivery. You really are set on coming, aren't you? Duh. I was tired of his sass. No one will think less of you for turning back. In fact, we may think more of you. Don't listen to him, Trenia said, brushing past Theron and heading towards the trees. He's just scared of someone who isn't scared of him. You'll be fine. Theron scoffed at her comment and gave me a half-hearted sneer as I walked past. Trinia led us beyond the edge of the main road and onto the narrow footpath that cut into the woods. My heart started racing as tree shadow began to cover the grass. This was a place out of stories. A place out of dreams. And I was about to walk into it. I stopped in my tracks to let the moment sink in, forcing Theron to sidestep so as to not bump into me. Watch it! Sorry. I looked at the trunks. And then I looked up to the top. Like, my neck was bent as far back as it could go up. The trees looked evergreen bold and strong and imposing in a way castles can only imagine. Home. Whoa! I had noticed Trenia double back. That's how far up I was looking. She came to stand beside me and looked up, too. Beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Beautiful. And dangerous to those who aren't careful. She saw the fear flash across my face. I'll be right beside you. And when we get to your tribe? That's when I'll be glad to have you beside me. She gave me a smile as warm as I'd ever seen on her face, and continued along the path. I took a deep breath. Then when I was sure she wasn't looking, I did a little jig. And then I ran to catch up with her, and we passed into the trees. As soon as we crossed the threshold of Beleth, the world became quiet and still. The understory was a veritable cavern, each tree a massive pillar thrusting skywards to prop up the verdant ceiling, where thick boughs all but swallowed the sun. The high branches allowed us to see for miles, or at least as far as one could see before a cottage-sized trunk or rolling hill blocked the view. Ferns dominated the underbrush, and the trail was a soft, spongy snake of fallen needles that slithered around trunks and roots large enough to engulf entire wagons. Within a few small steps, I noticed a distinct shift in the air. It smelled of damp tree breath and rotting wood. It was heavy. Heavy as if I was walking into gusting wind. But there was no wind. No, no, there, there was a different type of oppressiveness. It filled my lungs with fear and made my legs feel like stones falling in deep water. It made my thoughts move like honey, slow and languid, which alarmed me still further. I grew anxious about losing sight of Trenia as she darted over and under barrel-thick roots, 
and I ran after her, calling out, Trenia? She paused on the path, and waited patiently as I caught up. You all right? No. I, I'm, I'm scared. It's hard. It's, it's hard. it's hard to breathe. Is it? Funt, come here. Trenia put a hand on each of my shoulders, closed her eyes, and looked every bit as if she were about to soul-send. She took several deep breaths, then opened her eyes and projected her voice, like she was talking to the trees themselves. Vila Karaom! Her words boomed out into the cavernous space and echoed off the trunks. But nothing happened. Instead, my heaviness increased to the point that I couldn't have kept walking even if I wanted to, and the very darkness of the woods seemed to be creeping towards me with lapping tendrils, hungry for whatever light it could find. Trenia's concerned expression did nothing to ease my panic. She pulled me to her chest, wrapped me in her arms, and recited her speech once again. Before she could finish, Theron strode up beside us and placed a hand on each of our heads. As soon as he finished, my breath came easier. My mind felt clearer, and the woods themselves seemed brighter. Theron dropped his hand from my head. He tussled Trenia's hair and raised a scornful eyebrow. Honestly... You thought the woods wouldn't know. Theron walked away and down the path, his normal air of self-righteousness fully restored. Trenia and I released our grips on the other. I looked around, and the whole forest was utterly transformed. A warm golden light poured in from the canopy. Birds flew through the branches and sang sweet tunes beyond the range of country beaks, and the heavy dampness in the air was replaced by the smell of bright pine. I looked at Trenia. What just happened? Trenia took a moment before meeting my eyes, as if answering the same question for herself. Fam Uriel, the guard. The guard? A protective force granted by the forest to keep out unwelcome visitors. I, I didn't think they would affect you since we're together, but apparently... Trenia ran a hand through her hair as if combing away an unwelcome thought. Apparently I'm not to be trusted anymore. My blessing of protection always worked for Laurel, but... Luckily Theron was here to vouch for you. Are you okay? I... I think so? I took a mental stock of my body and feelings, and other than a lingering sense of distrust, everything was back to normal. You know, most people just put up a sign. People walk by signs. Even a fence rarely works to keep out people who want in. But the guard... I've never had to feel it before, but I've heard it's rather unpleasant. Pfft. Oh, if this is what the trees are like, I'm scared to meet your parents. Trinia gave a strange smile that suggested my fear was not misplaced, then sighed and walked on. I took a deep breath, shook off the experience, and followed her down the path. Everything was bright and beautiful now. Flowers splashed the ground with pinks and yellows. Ivy spiraled up the trunks like leafy lace, and wherever there weren't plants or ferns or bud-coated bushes on the forest floor, there was thick, decadent moss. I turned to look back at the ground we'd covered, half expecting to see the dank dark of the outer forest still looming behind me. But it was utterly enchanting, green and gold and gleaming, with no trace of the terror I'd seen before. I relaxed a bit, and was instantly bubbling with a hundred questions. Trenia? Yes? How does the forest know who's welcome or not? Do the trees have brains? Are there elves patrolling the borders too? How did the forest change so fast? Was it like this for you the whole time? Oh, there they are. There are the questions. Yeah, I got a lot. <laughs> well, it's still a long walk to the Nuvanga. 
Let's see how many we can answer. Trinia loaded me up with as much information as she could, but our walk was barely long enough to scrape the surface of Narangan culture. For a while, she answered my questions with enthusiasm. Yes, the trees have their own sense of awareness, but no, they don't have brains. Yes, there are elves patrolling the forest, and usually Trenia is one of them. But no, the forest didn't actually change, just what I saw of it changed, and on and on and on. But after a few hours, as the woods grew more open and deciduous trees began to mix with the conifers, Trenia grew quiet, somber, worried. She marched forth like a warrior bound for the front lines, and no wonder. She was about to face her family after running away from home and breaking from her tribe. Not your average stroll in the woods. No, sir. I used the silence to scheme up a plan for visiting Joe and Graham's hideout to the north. Hopefully the whole Trenia thing wouldn't take very long, and we could head there in a few days. And maybe Grandpower would be there. Ah! I practically skipped the thought. After nearly five hours of walking through Beleth, as the sun dropped below the boughs and afternoon shadows took on a darker shape, Trenia, Theron, and I were stopped on our journey by a sudden shh. I barely managed to keep in a startled scream, as a young elfling stood not six feet away from me beside a trunk. She, he, they, were, were pressed into the tree, watching something, listening. They beckoned for us to hide behind the trunk and keep quiet. This new elf was much shorter than the other two elves by my side, and was slight as a sapling. I'd have said they were twelve years old, were they a human. Their hair was a light chestnut brown plated into a messy braid abounding with all manner of twigs, sap, and pine needles. Their deep green eyes shone brightly against their hazel skin, and there was a hint of playfulness on their otherwise impassive face. They wore a strange cream-colored woolen throw thing belted around the waist to make a sort of dress, but nothing else. No shoes, no shirt, no pants. And yet they did not in any way seem underdressed. We all stood still and quiet beside the trunk for a moment, my breath embarrassingly loud compared to the rest. And then, around the curve of the tree, we saw it. A grazing stag. But not just any stag. It was midnight blue and sparkly. Its hide rippled like water tumbling over pebbles, and its contours were vague and blurry, as if the outline of its body was constantly shifting and rearranging itself. Trinia looked at me and smiled. Durbindala, air shifters, watch. Trinia knelt down, slow and quiet and picked up a stick from the ground. After receiving nods from Theron and the young elf, she hurled the stick towards the stag. It spun end over end, headed straight for the stag's head, but where I expected to hear the clatter of stick against antler, I heard an agitated buzzing, and I watched in awe, my eyes wider than wide, as the stag burst into a thousand parts. The pieces scattered angrily from where the stag had once stood, dodging and darting, swirling and swarming, and I realized... They were some sort of bee. Blue, thumb-sized, shape-shifting bees. Trenia, Theron, and the little elf all stepped out from behind the trunk and watched the frenzy from a distance. Gradually, bee by bee, the scattered swarm began to assemble once again. They congealed into a blurry blue mass, and before long, the blur took the shape of a sleek four-legged creature with a long tail, heavy paws, and rounded ears. It looked like a gigantic, majestic version of our cat in Fribbleshire, Mrs. Morris. It prowled atop the moss in a most elegant manner, licked its paw, and walked out of sight. Trinia turned to me and laughed. Apparently the expression of marvel was still on my face. If you thought that was amazing, wait till you try the honey. It was at this point that the small elfling noticed me. They crinkled their face, shocked by my humanness, 
and turned to Trinia. Trinia, youth be me the yacht to drink it Trinia scowled and made a comment to brush away the question, as if it were a long story. Nila ya to cool. She gave the elfling a pat on the shoulder and kept walking. The young elf looked me up and down with a blunt curiosity that any human would have found rude, then skipped ahead to catch up with Trenia. The two chatted in Nervangan, while Theron and I followed behind. Su, iliut betvarda? Oh, cry galathono. Hathila funtiel pudima. I cry pude Nervanga. Hey, Theron, what are they saying? They're asking if you speak Nervangan. The elfling turned to look at me as they walked. Obviously not. <laughs> oh. Do not worry. We Nervangan no tringith talk to. Some more goodly than others. Oh, that's a relief. Uh, I'm Allie, by the way. Allie odds. At that, the small elf stopped in their tracks, spun around to face me, and held out both their hands. When I didn't immediately take them in my own, Trinia proffered for me to do so with a subtle nod. I put my hands in the elf's smaller hands and felt a tingle of energy, like when your fingers thaw after being out in the cold for too long. The elf looked me straight in the eyes, much like Trenia did in our brain mildy moments, and spoke. O Ilalayev, Thono O, O Thono Uth. In Trenith this means, I am Layev. Know me, and I will know you. After finishing this speech, they did not release my hands, nor did they look away. Nope. Full blast staring, all the way. I stared back at them awkwardly, not sure what I was supposed to do. Like when I met Trinia at the stinky boot, it seemed rude to break our eye contact. It was so deliberate, so piercing, so intense. Like they were looking into me, and I felt uncomfortably vulnerable. But still, I didn't allow myself to look away. I stared back, and in searching their leafy green eyes, I soon felt as if I had fallen into them. That I, too, was gazing into this elf, seeing them, knowing them. My discomfort faded, and soon I found myself smiling. The tingling feeling I'd had in my fingers seemed to run through my entire body. But no sooner had I felt this exchange of spirit than they squeezed my hands and gave me a smile. Ali Odds, pleased to know you. With that, the elf let go of my hands and continued walking down the path. The tingle in my fingers faded away, pulse by pulse, seeping into the surrounding air, which hummed with its own aliveness. Trinia gave me a pat on the shoulder as she passed, a sort of congratulations, it seemed, and once again left me and Theron to take up the rear. We'd hardly walked more than five paces when Theron said, Life is young. Naive. Ignorant to the way things work. Okay. I waited for him to continue, hopeful that his condescension was going somewhere. He waited for Trenia and Laif to pass around a large trunk and out of sight, then grabbed my arm and pulled me to a stop. I want to make something clear. You are not welcome here. Leif is too young to know better, but this little game Trenia is playing will end badly for you both if you do not mind your place as an outsider and stay quiet. Let go of me. I tried to shrug him off, but his grip was too strong. Do you understand? You are lucky to meet the Nurvanga. You are lucky to visit our home. Lucky only. Not welcome. Understood? Understood! Let go! I shook my arm again, and this time he released his grip. He stood up straight and readjusted his cloak, as if the experience had ruffled him and made him uncouth. He walked on, and I followed him, rubbing my arm where he'd gripped it too tight. Perhaps the forest was listening to Theron's words, or perhaps it knew how I felt upon hearing them, because as I walked, the golden light of Beleth turned gray. I could no longer hear the chirping of birds, or the trickling of creeks. 
all the glimmer and glamour I'd seen in the woods faded away. And I wondered if this sudden change was once more the work of the guard, or if the clouds had come from inside. Soon, Trenia fell back to walk beside me, and pointed to a large ash tree up ahead. We're here. I looked to the tree, which, like all the other trees in Beleth, was ridiculously huge, and saw that a significant portion of its massive roots rested above ground, as if the tree had a tiny hill beneath its trunk. The roots fanned out like the base of a stemware goblet, bending in wibbly-wobbly ways before bedding themselves in the soil, effectively lifting the trunk some ten feet in the air, and giving the impression that the tree was standing on its tiptoes. Amidst the writhing roots was a door-sized hollow, and within that hollow was a door-sized door. The wood was a dusty purple, and ornately carved. Ringlets of vines, leaves, and branches adorned the face, carved by deft hands and defter eyes. Several shallow clay dishes with oily wicks were set into the roots that framed the door, projecting like shelf mushrooms and glowing with a soft purple light. Yes, purple! As we stood there, a sudden flurry arose in my stomach. Is this your family's house? My palms started to sweat. No, this is Sindon's home, Leif's father. Our home is closer to the gathering space, the Lothroin. Oh, how far is that? I was tired of walking. Not half a mile. Are you ready? No. You? No. We stood in silence for a moment, steeling ourselves. We'd had so long to plan for this moment, but fear has a way of subverting even the most stolid of preparations. Light returned to the woods as the sun sank low, and an orange glow filled the forest. I spotted more tippy-toe trees up ahead, similarly adorned with mushroom lights and fancy doors. Doors which opened and closed and sent forth elven figures to mull about in the gathering twilight. Laundry lines hung between the roots of several homes, drying sheets of dyed wool like the one Leia wore, as well as trousers, gowns, and vests. Sheltered tables sat outside several trees, hosting half-finished projects of wood or willow or cloth or clay and tools that had been left for the morrow's labor. Garden beds lined the pathways, adding an herby verve to the evening air, and a gentle creek trickled to and fro alongside the main trail where we stood. The image of Nervanga was so beautiful, I found myself instinctively stepping towards it. But then I noticed Trenia staying put. I approached her and put my hands on her shoulders. She clearly needed a pep talk. <sighs> hey, it takes a lot of bravery to face your mistakes. To accept when you've messed up and hurt people you love. It takes even more bravery to walk back into that mess and try and make it right again. And look at you. You're here. You've got all the courage you could ever need. But if, if that's still not enough, then you can have mine. At this, I reached into my pants pocket and pretended to pull something out. Here. I held out an empty hand to Trenia, and she laughed. <laughs> Thank you. She took the courage from my hand and rubbed it into her chest. You're welcome. Now, to the rough the Lothroin. Yes, I'm ready. The first quarter of the moon was high and bright above the trees as we made our way to the Lothroin, and there was a festive feel in the air. I smelled roasted meat and spicy, fragrant smoke. I heard laughter and what sounded like the pluck of a harp, all coming from a cluster of glowing lights up ahead. Trenia and I joined a trickle of elves flowing towards the center of the village, and I heard several underbreath comments as we went. Trenia! Bilahai! Ilave! We approached a grand, rounded gazebo in the center of the community, the Lothroian. It stood some forty feet high and was large enough to house an entire village. 
From a distance, it was carved to look like a grove of small trees, which anywhere else would have been normal-sized trees, with intertwining boughs, each trunk a sturdy pillar supporting the intricate latticework ceiling. But as we drew nearer, I saw that it was a grove of trees with intertwining boughs, and dangling from the intricate leafy latticework were hundreds of glass balls, each radiating a different shade of pastel light. Fresh-picked periwinkle, sunset ochre, spruce-tipped green, frost-in-the-morning gray, even a titillating turquoise, all burning like stars in their tiny globes and casting a rainbow of light upon the gathered elves below. It was an enchanting scene. Tables were piled high with food and drink, harps mingled with drums in a way I didn't know was possible. Pointy-eared elves of all shapes and sizes danced with and around each other in an undirected way that reminded me much of my own dancing. And all around the hall, there were smiles, embraces, kisses, hugs. It was a party beyond anything I'd ever seen. And then, they saw us. <gasps> the music stopped. The laughter died. All activity ceased in an instant, and every eye in the Nervanga turned to me and Trenia. Trenia froze like never before. Her eyes were white as a startled hind, her body rigid as a rover's rock. She clearly wasn't going to be the first one to talk, so I waved. Hi. N nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> not a wave back, not a hi, a hello, a heck no, just a nothing. After a long, uncomfortable moment, the crowd parted, and two elves came forward. These were Trenia's parents, I guessed, Korathel and Moranga. They were both so gentle of face and strong of body, I couldn't tell which was her father and which was her mother. They were both elvishly middle-aged, and had copper-brown skin and dark hair like Trenia. The larger elf had two small braids of hair that ran from the temples and joined in the back, with a streak of silver hair darting through each braid. The smaller elf, who was slightly more mannish, but still not very mannish at all, stared at Trenia unblinkingly. Trenia, open salon, uthi the high. There was a heavy silence, as no elf dared breathe until this mannish elf made his move. He stepped towards Trenia and stared at her long and hard. After what felt like a whole turn, the elf came forward and took Trenia in his arms. At this, the gathered Nervanga raised their left arms high into the air with their palms facing inward and shook their forearms with slow deliberation. All elves did this except the taller, less mannish elf with a silver streak in their hair. Korathel, Trenia's mother, who stared at me unblinkingly, her golden eyes so bright and piercing it felt like they would burn me alive. Only when Korathel broke her eye contact and turned the heat on Trenia did I realize I had stopped breathing. Korathel stepped forward to Trenia now, gesturing at me like a dog. Yayuta trengith. Rada? I didn't have to speak Nervangan to know Trinia was being torn a new one. You could practically see smoke rising from Korathel's tongue. But still, I leaned over to Leif, who stood beside me. What are they saying? Her mother asks Trinia why she brings another human to Nervanga. She's not thinking. Tia bilfam ruidoth danakreatha quifam lep trengeth utpamida yota. After all the trouble she makes with last human, she brings another. Nay, cry uth huselu den venga. Why? Does she hate her family? Suck. Shame. Suck, suck, suck. Funti suck. Shame, shame, shame. So much shame. Yeah, okay, I get it. 
Trinia stared down at her feet, unable to meet her mother's eyes as the assault ended, and silence once more filled the Lothra in. Yep, it was about as bad as I expected. But hoping that was the worst of it, I nudged Trinia. Remember why we came. We're here to face the fight, right? For better or worse. Trinia nodded and took a deep breath. She raised her chin and addressed her people. Om Nurdenga. Ah, O Ilahai. And I will ask leave to speak the Trangith tongue, for we have a guest with us who does not understand Nervangan, and I was raised to treat guests with kindness. All guests, Trangith or no. Trenia shot a startlingly venomous look at her mother, then continued. Yes, I am back. I am back to take responsibility for my actions, and to make my apologies to the tribe. I broke my vows, and I offer myself to your judgment. I saw Theron grinning with all the smugness a smile can hold as Trenia spoke. A pale elf man stood close beside him with a cane, and seemed to be sharing in Theron's triumph. I request a Huti Thalion, so that I may speak and be heard by the whole family. Again, the whole crowd of elves raised their left hands and shook them gently in the air, a gesture I took to mean approval or agreement. And, while I am still a member of the tribe, I request that my friend here— Friend only— Corathel passed the venom back to her daughter. I request that my friend, Ali Odds, is allowed to stay for a quarter turn, as is custom. At this, I heard grumbles rumble through the crowd. My humanity was not popular here, as Theron had warned. Grant her this, for I would not be here if she had not insisted I return and face what I have done. The grumbles turned into astonished murmurs, and I felt the tone of the Nervanga shift to surprise rather than scorn. Trenia's father, Moranga, turned to the gathered elves and asked, It has been requested we hold Huti Thaliam to discuss the fate of Trenia Tinorvenga. Are there any opposed? The crowd was silent and didn't stir. Very well. Slowly, Moranga bent down to kneel in the grass. He placed his palm flat on the earth, fingers splayed, then closed his eyes and took a deep breath. For a tense span, nothing seemed to be happening. We were all just staring at an elven dude playing touch the grass. But then I nearly yelped out of shock when I saw glowing hair-like tendrils rise out of the soil and thread gently together over Moranga's hand until his fingers disappeared in a delicate glove of pale green light. The whole crowd of pointy-eared elves stood silent and solemn while he did this, as if they too were bound to the soil through their very feet. Moranga muttered several Nervangan words under breath, and then there was a great silence, as if all wind, all breath, all thought inside the Lothro Inn was gathered beneath Moranga's glowing hand, until, all at once, it was released. A pulse of air blasted outwards from where Moranga knelt, like an explosion of wind, stirring the grass, fluttering the leaves, ruffling the elves' colorful clothing, and tossing their neatly groomed hair into disarray. A deafening sound like a heartbeat thudded in the hall, then passed on, out beyond the Lathruin, bum-bum-ing further and further away until it faded, bum-bum, into the darkness of the trees, bum-bum. The glowing tendrils withdrew from Moranga's hand and resorbed back into the soil. He rose to face the Nervanga once again, where they stood patting their flipped collars and strayed hairs back into place. We shall hold Huti Thaliam two days hence. Those who are far shall come. Great! Trenny would have her meeting. All would be well. <laughs> oh, but I'd forgotten. It has been requested that the Trengith 
Ali odds is granted guest rights and may stay for a quarter turn as is custom. Are there any opposed? Corathil was first to raise her hand, and several more hands followed, including Moranga's and Theron's, as well as a pale-skinned elf by his side. At least two dozen palms proclaimed their distaste, and I was met with several stares hot enough to cook an egg. Chernia put a supportive hand on my shoulder. Those in favor. A slow trickle of hands went up, until most of the view was palms. <sighs> Chernia sighed in relief, the tension visibly melting from her body. I guess enough of the Nervanga still held to the old ways. Thank you, Custom. Moranga turned back to me and Trenia, shaking his head. The Trengith Aliads shall be a guest of the Norvanga for one quarter turn. There were more grumbles from the crowd. About two dozen, I'd wager, and I heard Corathel scoff. Moranga looked up at the moon, where the waxing quarter glimmered through the interlaced branches of the Lothroin. He reached a hand into the air, as if harvesting a beam of moonlight, then brought his closed fist to rest against my forehead. He spoke, loud enough for all to hear. Omkara Nurvenga, Vila Hambeli, Varia Ratiarima. And then he pressed his hand flat against my brow. I felt a tingle of energy burrow into my forehead, as if Moranga was pouring ice water through a hole in my skin. I felt the energy trickle from my head, down my neck, down my shoulders, through my chest, to my fingers, to my toes, my whole body lit and enlivened through every bit of blood and bone. When Moranga pulled his hand away, I instinctively reached up to my forehead to see if there was indeed an opening where he'd pressed his palm. I couldn't feel it with my fingers, but I saw a pale white light reflected on my hand. Moranga stepped back and said quietly, When the moon is full, you must leave. Trinia nudged me to stop feeling my forehead and respond. Oh, uh, understood. Thank you. I raised my voice so the crowd could hear me. Thank you all for allowing me to visit your homeland. It's a dream come true to be here, and I really appreciate your generosity in hosting me. And But I was cut off by Corathel, who pointed an angry finger at me and said to Trinia, This will not stay in our house, and neither will you until it is gone. Corathel glared at Trinia, then turned her back and walked away, as did several others. This both deflated and enraged me. But the deflated part won out. Theron audibly laughed as my expression sank, and while this added to the rage, I held it in. I didn't want to make a scene, especially in a place where I already wasn't welcome. Moranga drew closer and held out a hand to both me and Trenia. I took it, but I felt no tingle like I had when meeting Leif. He looked at me with his searching brown eyes, and then at Trenia. I saw tears welling up in her eyes, eyes which were nearly identical to her father's. Jinpa. Om Sulon. He took a deep breath, squeezed our hands, and let go. Come, you have traveled far. Feast, rest, let business be left for the morning. As I felt around for the blessing on my forehead, Morongo led us through the Lothro Inn to several tables laden with food. A few dishes I recognized, like roasted root vegetables, leafy green salads, and sausages. But much of the array was foreign. Pink fruit that coiled like wood shavings? Dumpling-esque balls that were grassy green and stuffed with a paste that looked like fish eyes but smelled like strawberries? Hunks of meat that had orange flesh. Yes, orange. And purple bones. Chernia passed me a wooden plate and I filled it primarily with things I could recognize. And then a few things I didn't, like the curly pink fruit and what I hoped was gravy. Chernia filled her plate and then guided me to a table with a dozen or so glazed jugs. 
Remember the Tubindala? The bee things? Yes, the air shifters. Trinia poured a bright blue liquid into two wooden cups. This is mead made with their honey. Go on, give it a sip. I did. And sweet cider was a delicious. Oh, it was like honey and happiness had a child. And then that child had a child with perfection and delight. I felt a rush of warmth as it slid down my throat, and all the weariness of our ten-day march washed away in an instant. Oh my gosh. Give me more. Trenia smiled and filled my cup to the brim. Food and drink in hand, we found a bench formed by the roots of one of the columnar trees that supported the Lothro Inn, and there we ate and watched as the Nervanga went about their feasting. Root benches stuck out from every tree that encompassed the Lothro Inn, but most elves forsook them to sit on the grass. They arranged themselves in flexible groups as people came and went, snagging seconds, mingling with a friend over here, saying hello to an elf over there. It had none of the stifled formality I'd always expected of a great feast, and with no king or queen sitting at the head of a table, everyone here was on equal footing. Except for me and Trenia, of course. No one talked to us. But every elf in the place stared in our direction at least twice. Soon a group of volunteers walked through the hall and gathered up plates and cutlery, and the elves gave their attention to two musicians sitting in the center of the Lothro Inn. One was a womanish elf with one side of her head shaved, and a smooth strip of brown hair tumble falling down across her shoulder. The other was the elf who had stood beside Theron earlier, the one with the cane and pale skin. As he turned the pegs and plucked the strings to tune a curiously shaped lute, I noticed that his left leg was short and crooked, as if it had been run over by a cart and improperly healed. I leaned over to Trenya. Hey, who's that guy with the looty thing? Who? The guy with the crooked leg. Oh, that's Argion. Theron's bow. They promised a soul bond, according to some. But Theron won't confirm it. I wanted to ask her why. But Algion strummed a loud chord on his lute, and the Ravenga fell silent. At this, a majority of the crowd looked towards me and laughed, none louder than Theron. My cheeks grew hot, and I wished I were invisible. I whispered to Trenia, What did he say? Nothing worth repeating. So, in honor of our guest, we shall sing it in Trengith, the moon and the sun, our parents ever watching, ever loving. Every elf in the Lotharian looked up to the sky when he spoke, where the quarter moon sent down a silver glow to sparkle in their eyes. Algion turned to the elf by his side, who gave him a nod, and they counted themselves into the song. Ya, la, do, rat. Have their echo 
Ghost on below. For our children keep our fire and stone in their hearts, never alone. In their hearts, never rest of the evening was a blur. The song affected me like a spell, and eased my thoughts into a dreamlike trance, which, combined with the mead, the food, and ten days of walking, nearly sunk me into sleep. I was aware that music kept going, that the mead kept flowing, the lights kept floating, glowing pink, no purple, no, no yellow, no green, but it was all a blur. A beautiful, mystical, mesmerizing blur. At some point, Trinia helped me to my feet and walked me away from the Lafroin. She led me out into the dark, deep, dank forest, away from the celebrations, to a spot where the ground was soft and furry and smelled like pine. I lay down on my side, and she draped something over me that was warm as sunshine. Good night, Ali. Intelesinden. Blessed dreams. Good night. I was so relaxed I couldn't tell where my body ended and where the earth began. It was the most comfortable I'd ever been in my entire life. But then I felt a dull pain growing under my hip, like there was a rock burrowing into the bone. I shifted to the other side and reached towards the pain. Leather. Metal. Bertram's dagger, which was still belted around my waist. I undid the belt and cradled the dagger to my chest. What would Bertram say if he could see me now? Training with an elf warrior? Tracking down bandits? Getting elvish blessings? Picking the soul wedgie he had talked about? In the magical woods of Beleth, no less? I pressed a finger to my no longer glowing but still tingling forehead and stared up at the stars where they twinkled through the boughs overhead. I hoped he'd be proud. Thanks for listening to Alley Odds and the Alley Odds Squad. I'm Leona Cara, and it is so good to be sharing stories with you again. Aliod's currently functions as a side project in my life, even though it takes up as much time as my real person job, and it took me longer than I'd hoped to bring these new episodes to you. It also took longer than I thought, because I ended up writing a lot. 
and creating an elven language system for Nervangan, since I wanted it to feel like a functional language. This batch of six episodes constitute a small novel, based off word count, and combined with the previous seven episodes, are longer than either of the first two Harry Potter books. That's nearly a hundred thousand words! That was quite a surprise to discover when I wrapped up the scripts. I had no idea I had been writing that much. So thank you for your continued patience, as I weave this story one strand at a time, crafting the sincerest tale my hands know how to make. And, as custom demands, there are many thank yous to make, because thank yous are important. First, I want to thank my beloved friends Tracy Luther and Alexandra Dumas, who perform incredible music as a duo Moonwater, who sang the song at the end of this episode, Rima Ut Oin, which means the moon and sun in Nervengen. That song was the first thing I wrote for the entire bulk of these new episodes, and it was an honor to play guitar beside them after so many years of listening to their music and being inspired by their gifts. I highly encourage you to follow Moonwater on Instagram for news about their work and to see them live whenever you get the chance. Also, visit my website, aliods.podbean.com, for a downloadable version of the song Rima Ut Oin, so you can listen to their vocal goodies all day long. Second, I want to give a shout out to my lovely patrons on Patreon. Thank you all so much for giving me the ability to take time off of work this fall to write more of this story, and for letting me know that what I'm doing with Ali Odds matters to you. It can be really hard to know what makes a difference in this age of informational inundation and exploitative entertainment, and you all help keep it simple. You help me bring art into the world, which I enjoy, for you to enjoy. Isn't that beautiful? For more information about how to help this little show stay afloat, and for behind-the-scenes updates and content, visit patreon.com forward slash I must also thank my darling roommates, Aaron, Kellen, Kelly, Lauren, and Zaya, who fed me when I wrote through dinner, who listened to my drafts when I was too excited to keep them to myself, and whose love and support brought me through a very challenging three months of work. Much love to you, my dears. Last, I want to thank you. You are a cherished member of my story family. I may not have the honor of knowing you in person, but I sincerely appreciate getting to spend time with you be it on a bus on your way to work, at the end of the day as a sleeping salve, or in the morning on a crisp, grass-crinkling walk. Your presence in this world is a gift. Thank you. With that said, I hope you have a magical day, and I'll see you around the fire for Chapter 9, The Sound of a Falling Tree. <laughs>